Galatians 3, starting with verse 7 through the end of the chapter. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, according to promise. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And our eyes are upon you, O Lord, that you might teach us uh, from your word that, Lord, you may uh, meet us where we uh, each are in various um, levels of understanding and in various levels of acquaintance with your word. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would feed us each, O Lord. I, pray that you would feed us very liberally from your word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. 
Amen. Well, this morning we come to our final message in our series on the sacraments, and I really want to begin this message this morning really with a fairly lengthy review of what we did last week for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I know at least one of us didn't hear the message last week, so uh, the, the additions that I have in this message are uh, really going to build on what we did last week, and if you didn't hear what we did last week, then it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Um, secondly, if we, um, you know, if you're like me, you have to go over this stuff a lot uh, in order to get it. I, I said uh, something in passing to Donald last week that, uh, I think it was after the sermon, right after the service, that um, maybe 20 years from now I'll figure out a simpler way to explain the sacraments, but that isn't doing us any good today, is it? <laughs> So please bear with me. It seems that the only way to do it is just to throw everything out there and then begin trying to sort it out, which is uh, what I have done. Now, I want to review uh, a lot of the things that we covered last week to try to clarify those points uh, in our mind. In order to, to benefit from any kind of message, uh, you have to have uh, pegs to hang the information on in your mind. Uh, a lot of times we call these points uh, one of the big points that I was really trying to make last week is what is the, the sacraments? What, what exactly are? What are, they, what are they doing for us? And we might um, answer a question like that um, by saying, well, the sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And if we were to uh, go into a classroom and each of us were to get an exam question and the exam question were to read, okay, what are, what are the sacraments? And each of us were to write, oh, we got this one. They're signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Uh, we'd get the question perfectly correct. But here's, here's, the, here's the downfall. Would we have any idea what we wrote down? You know, in the church, I'm really coming to realize more and more that there's all kinds of catchwords and catchphrases and little things that we can pick up actually quite easily that we don't ever bother to stop and define. Uh, one of those is the glory of God. I mean, there's so much language about the glory of God, the glory of God, and there should be a lot of language about the glory of God. But what do we do Wednesday nights? Uh, we ask the question, what is the glory of God? And... Um, um, we're all gathered in our little circle and we were all kind of quiet, weren't we? Now, how many times have you heard about the glory of God? It's one of those catchphrases. What is the glory of God? And the sacraments are also, in that, I think, in that category. You know, We think, okay, the sacraments, okay, baptism, Lord's Supper. I got that. Um, but what are they? What do they do? Signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Okay, uh, we got the first question right. Now, what if the next question is an essay question and it's for 10 points and it says, okay, flesh out what is meant by signs and seals of the covenant of grace. <laughs> okay, can we pass that? Well, uh, the, the object of the message this morning is to help us at least maybe get a few of those points. Uh, we might not get them all this morning, but if we could begin to build on them, that would be great. Let's start with Romans 4.11. We've been focusing on this verse uh, remember what Paul says. He says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. There's a lot being said with that sentence. 
You know, it's important to note that circumcision did not give, give Abraham this righteousness, right? What's the verse say? It says he had it by faith while he was still what? Uncircumcised. So circumcision didn't give him the faith. He had the faith before he was circumcised. Okay, the sign and the seal is not conferring uh, the faith here. Um, it's important that we understand that. Uh, the, circum the sacrament of circumcision is serving, a, is serving as a sign and seal of the righteousness. Now, how did Abraham receive that righteousness? The verse tells us he received it by faith, right? Um, he received it by faith. So what role is the sacrament of circumcision playing here? It's serving as a sign to Abraham. Uh, so, uh, what kind of sign? Um, how, how is the sacrament of circumcision serving Abraham as a sign? Now, if you remember last week, one of the other points that I made was fleshing out how the Bible uses signs. Now, we have signs all over the Bible, don't we? Uh, they're all over the place. And uh, I gave three things that the signs... Um, uh, do for us. Uh, does anybody remember what they are? They, they confirm uh, the promises of God, right? They strengthen us in terms of the promise of God, and they authenticate the promises of God. Uh, I, I was going to give different examples this morning, and I decided not to. I thought, let's not muddy the water up. Let's stick with the same examples we had last week. Uh, last week, we thought about the rainbow um, I think that's a great example because it's so widely known. We've all seen a rainbow. Uh, when you see the rainbow, what do you think of? Uh, hopefully you think of a promise that God made to Noah after he had destroyed the entire uh, earth with a flood. God says to Noah, he says, I'm not going to do this ever again. I will never destroy the entire earth by, by way of a flood ever again. And the rainbow is a sign of that promise, isn't it? What is it doing? It is confirming. It is, it is uh, confirming that promise. Does, does, does it add anything to God's promise? Absolutely not. Is the rainbow stopping the world, the earth from being flooded? Absolutely not. When God makes the promise, that, that promise is absolute at that point. Nothing can add to it. Nothing can subtract to it. So what is the purpose of the sign? It's to confirm us in our weaknesses. It's to, it's to, it's to confirm us in, in the feebleness of our faith, if you will, which leads to the second role uh, of the sign. If you remember, I used uh, the call of Moses to go to Pharaoh as an example. You know, in Exodus uh, chapter 3, God calls Moses, and, and his calling is to go to Pharaoh and, and order Pharaoh to allow his entire slave population to go free and Moses, in, in trepidation, responds to God's call by saying, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's trembling in his boots. We can understand why, can't we? Um, now, how does God respond in verse 12? First, he says, I'm going to be with you. And then he says, This shall be the sign for you. And Moses is getting a sign. It's a sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, what's, what's God doing? He's giving Moses a sign. 
But it's important that we understand the experience. It's important that we understand the circumstance. This is in a time of weakness. The sign is given to strengthen Moses in his weakness. It's pretty easy to see, right? As uh, Calvin used to say, God gives us signs in order to strengthen our feeble faith. So it confirms God's promise to our hearts. It strengthens uh, our feeble faith as well, and it also authenticates. You know, when we turn to the New Testament, namely to the ministry of Jesus, and especially we see this in the Gospel of John. If you, if you read John closely, you'll see that the word sign, or more specifically the plural word signs, they, they play a, an important role in John's Gospel. He, he, uh, it, it actually, the John's Gospel actually could be outlined by virtue of these signs. We think of the first sign uh, that Jesus uh, performs is the, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, right, in chapter 2. Um, Jesus makes a number of claims, and if we, if we think of the signs in one hand and we think of the I am sayings of John in the other hand, we can see how these two things are working in concert. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Um, he makes that claim. Well, um, he authenticates, he validates that claim uh, by f- miraculously feeding those large crowds with just a few uh, loaves of bread and uh, some fish. Uh, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he validates that claim by raising Lazarus from the dead. And we can, we can see that the, the sign, how it uh, authenticates. I mean, anybody could run up and down Palestine and make claims like that. Uh, how are we to know that this really is uh, God making these claims? Well, here you go. Give me a couple of fish and uh, give me uh, some, some bread and I'll feed however. You, you can invite anybody you want. We'll feed them all. Uh, Lazarus, he's been in the tomb. Um, roll the stone away. Lazarus, come out. Um, you can see how that confirms. So, um, uh, What benefit does Abraham gain from the sacrament of circumcision? Well, the answer is that circumcision confirms, it strengthens, and it authenticates to Abraham the promise of the covenant of grace. Namely, the promise that we can be credited as righteous by trusting uh, God, right? Does that make sense? Sort of. Okay, so Paul tells us that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Again, I don't want to belabor this, but circumcision doesn't add anything to the promise. It's a sign for Abraham, okay? Now, let, let's, um, let's build on this. Um, the purpose of going to Galatians chapter 3 this morning was to show that this promise to Abraham, which I've been making so much noise about. Uh, someone may think, okay, well, you're teaching about baptism, but you're constantly talking about Abraham. Uh, what's the purpose in that? Well, we need to see that this promise that God makes to Abraham all of those centuries ago is still in effect today. In fact, that covenant of grace runs right through both Testaments, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament authors are... Uh, go to great lengths to show us that this, that this promise continues. If you'll look in our text this morning uh, to Galatians chapter 
3, verses 7 and following, you'll see that uh, Paul writes, uh, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Uh, we think of the old Vacation Bible School song, you know, what's the lyrics to that go? Uh, uh, Abraham had many sons and uh, many sons had Abraham and I thank you that I am one, you know, and there's the, the movements that go with that. And, um, you know, what, what's, being, what's being said in that song? You see continuities being expressed in that song. Uh, if, you know, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, you're a son or a daughter of Abraham, you see. And uh, this covenant made back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 has everything to do with you and everything to do with me. Um, we clearly see that these promises, they apply uh, to the faithful of all ages. Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Notice what he says, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. You see, there the gospel is all the way back in Genesis. He says, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's a quotation from Genesis 12 and verse 3. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, pointing to the covenant of grace, namely the promise of the covenant of grace. Just like the rainbow points to the promise never to flood the earth, and this in the Old Testament administration, the sacrament of circumcision, pointed to the God's promise that by faith you can be credited as righteous. Does that make sense? In verse 16, Paul shows that the promise made to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. If you look down the page with me, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. He is the fulfillment of this promise. And lastly, look down to uh, verse 29, uh, where you see, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, this promise runs all the way through the Old Testament to the New. This week, this past week, uh, I talked with a, uh, a person that uh, just denounced the Old Testament. Um, and in fact, recently I've talked with two people. Uh, complete rejection of the Old Testament. Uh, they're, they're part of a New Testament church, and uh, we, we, we don't uh, embrace the Old Testament. We embrace the New Testament. This is very, very, it's a very, very common uh, belief that's very alive and well today. Uh, here we see the continuity. Uh, we don't want to reject the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the gospel is put forth in the Old Testament. The New Testament, we see the fulfillment of the promises that are made in the Old Testament. Uh, we could spend a, a lot of time on this. Let's move to the next point that I have here. Here we're, we're seeing that the covenant continues. Okay, this covenant, this promise, of which sac the sacrament of circumcision was the sign and the seal. Okay? Now, uh, uh, while this covenant promise continues, the sign of the promise changes. You know, after the crucifixion of Christ and uh, just before his ascension, uh, Jesus institutes the sacrament of baptism, which replaces circumcision. And if we think about this for a little bit, we, we, can, we can probably quickly understand why. Um, 
the, the, the sacrament of circumcision required surgery. It was a, a very bloody sacrament. And after the once and for all shed blood of Christ, a, a bloody sacrament no longer uh, seems appropriate. Uh, and uh, Christ did shed his blood once and for all uh, for the sins of his people. Uh, so we get this new uh, uh, sign of the covenant of grace, if you will, which involves water baptism. Last week we saw that the meaning of circumcision could be summarized with two words. Remember what they were? Uh, cleansing and consecration. I mean, there's two nice little words that start with a C. It might be easier for us to forget about the C and say cleansing, which I think we all understand, and think about being set apart. You know, this, the, obviously, those who were... Uh, uh, circumcised were different than the rest of the world. They were set apart. God was claiming them uh, as His. It's not a sign that, uh, that they, have, they now have faith and they want to devote themselves to God. Uh, it's a sign that God has literally called them. It's a sign that God has brought them into covenant with Him. We, we need to be care careful that we understand that. And when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we see that baptism means essentially the same. In Acts twenty two sixteen, Paul tells all who are listening to rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Rise and be baptized, wash away your sins. Here we see the idea of cleansing. Baptism carries the idea of cleansing. I think it's pretty easy for us to see. It's water um, carrying the idea of, of cleansing. Now, we can trip up in Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. Uh, we can read that verse and uh, say, well, look, uh, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins. We could conclude from that verse that baptism actually washes away our sins, couldn't we? W would that be correct? No. Why? Because that would be against the teaching of the rest of Scripture. The only way to be cleansed of our sins is by faith in Christ, right? So how could Paul say that baptism washes away our sins? Uh, the New Testament authors will do this sometimes. The sign and that which is signified or being shown forth by the sign are in such close union that sometimes the authors will just use the sign as a synonym to the reality that's being described. Does that make sense? I know this is tough. Um, it takes a while. It took, it's taken me a while to get this. If you're, if you're listening to all this, you're thinking, well, it's okay. <laughs> we don't have to get it all this morning. Um, it, it's probably not going to happen, but uh, we, we'll give it a try anyway. Uh, so we see that baptism doesn't cleanse us. It's the sign. Um, there, there's a very false and dangerous teaching out there that, uh, that teaches that uh, baptism actually cleanses you, that the rite of baptism uh, actually washes away your sins. It actually removes the, the liabilities of, a, of original sin. That is a very dangerous uh, teaching, and we want to guard our hearts against that. Uh, uh, we want to remember that the purpose of the sign is to show the promise of the covenant of grace. Now, as we think about consecration, as we think about um, uh, being set apart, the famous verse that uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, right before the ascension of Christ, Jesus says to His church, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Um, last week I made a connection between that verse and Genesis 17 that uh, 
Uh, They're both very similar in the respect that they're both a call to discipleship. Uh, Both of them are calls to discipleship. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And here we have the idea of consecration. You know, circumcision was entry into the covenant. Baptism is also entry into the covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that a person is in a state of grace. That doesn't mean that the person is saved. You remember I I made a a comment last week about uh, Jesus' trial. Uh, You know, Pontius Pilate is trying to just wash his hands of this whole thing, this whole matter with Jesus, and he offers to let him go. And what do they cry? They cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. My guess is the majority, if not all of them, who were yelling crucify him were circumcised. They were members of the covenant of grace. Hardly regenerate. Uh, They're yelling for the crucifixion of the Savior. So it's possible to be in the covenant and not be saved. Let's not think because you're in the covenant that you're necessarily in a state of grace. That's a little hard to get your mind around. Um, On the the surface, uh, it seems that uh, if we're in the covenant, then we're, 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 we're good to go, but not necessarily. Now, we've talked about the covenant continuing. We've talked about the change of the sign. Uh, lastly, let's look at the candidates. Uh, let's, build on, you know, let's build on what we've been, uh, what we've been working on. You know, the promises given to Abraham, those promises apply to us right now. And Jesus fulfills those promises. He changes the sign. So in the remaining amount of time, uh, I want to say a few words about the candidates for baptism. And this one is an area where there is a lot of division in the church. And there are really, really good folks on both sides of this camp. And I know some of you have grown up in churches that practiced believers' baptism. So the things that I'm going to say from this point forward are probably going to be a bit jarring. Um, And before I go any further, I want to say a couple of things about that. Um, This is not an issue that should cause any division uh, among us. Um, I'm a, a pastor in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, which practices infant baptism, uh, baptism of children. Um, generally speaking, when Tammy and I are not here, uh, we're usually worshiping at Parkside Church or at the, the last week, uh, weekend we were away, a couple of weeks ago, we worshiped at a Baptist church down in Charleston. Uh, when I studied at seminary, I studied right alongside a number of brothers and sisters who were Reformed Baptists. I love them. We disagree on this particular issue, but I will never let this divide us. Uh, I'm not saying this issue isn't important. It's very important, and it affects how we minister to the family. But what I am saying, it's not a primary issue. If you disagree with me on the next couple points I'm making, that's okay. Um, I've already cleaned the... Uh, the uh, parking lot from large rocks, so I know I'm safe. There will be no stoning, uh, at least after this service. You, you, if you're going to get me next week, you've got to bring your own rock, okay? <laughs> Just a little joke. When I first came to faith, I, I really wanted to be baptized. 
I, uh, I was reading Charles Spurgeon, who was the great Baptist preacher of the, uh, of the 19th century, and reading his arguments about believers' baptism. And I went to my pastor at the time, and I said, I want to be baptized. And, and his response was, you've already been baptized. I know, I was, but I was a baby when I was baptized. I want to be, I want to be baptized. And he goes, well, we, we don't, we, we're not going to rebaptize you. And uh, I, I, you know, I remember really struggling with that. I really wanted to be baptized. And all my Baptist friends are saying, hey, man, you can come over to our church and we'll, we'll dunk you. We'll get you fixed right up, man. No arguments, no nothing. And I'm thinking, what's, what's up with this? Well, one, I didn't know anything about the covenant. If you had said the word covenant to me, that would have been a strange word to me. And I wouldn't have understood much about the covenant. I wouldn't have put the connection between sacrifice circumcision and baptism. I didn't have that put together. There was just a lot of dots I didn't have crossed. And um, it, through my study of the covenants, I, I have abandoned that position for many reasons, and I'm not going to take the wheelbarrow and dump them all on you this morning. But I just want to give you a couple that I think are really just something to think about. And the first is the principle of representative headship. That's a really kind of academic uh, title to give this, but it is a good title, Representative Headship. Um, this, this principle is almost completely lost on our culture. Uh, we don't think in terms of families, groups, or corporations. We think in terms of me, myself, and I. And that is really going to be the destruction of our culture. Uh, it is destroying our culture, and it appears, unless God really intervenes in our culture, it is going to be the complete destruction of life as we know it here in the United States. I'm convinced of that. We cannot survive with a me, myself, and I narcissistic attitude run amok like it is today. The Bible doesn't think that way. The Scriptures don't teach that. There's a representation, if you will, all over the Scriptures. And... Um, if we think about, again, going back to Abraham, when God presents the sign of circumcision to Abraham, he commands Abraham to circumcise his entire household. Um, that household would be defined by all of those who are dependent on Abraham. Uh, servants, uh, the children of servants, um, relatives that were dependent on Abraham or dependent on his, uh, uh, dependent on him for, uh, for their econo uh, uh, economic needs, their clothing, their shelter, uh, all of them were commanded to be circumcised. Uh, all the way down to children, males, eight days and older. Uh, so here we, we have a, a representation. Um, by virtue of Abraham's faith, Okay, his whole household is being ordered to be brought into the covenant. Does that mean that every single individual in, in Abraham's household, which was a very large household, does that mean all of them were equally convinced of the faith uh, as Abraham was? I, I don't know any way to prove or disprove that, but I think it's hardly likely. And especially in the case of a male child that's only eight days old, um, th there is no way uh, for uh, a child that's eight days old to make any kind of decision, uh, uh, faith decision. And uh, I'll leave you with this. I think you'll find this really interesting. Women were actually included. 
lot of times you hear people say, well, you know, back in the Old Testament, women weren't included. You know, the guys were circumcised, and they were marked, but what about the women? The women were included. They were included by virtue of this representation. By Abraham being included, Sarah was included. They were very much included in this. Uh, we have to start thinking in terms of groups and thinking in terms of, of, uh, uh, of uh, corporations, if you will. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, we see the practice of baptism as the same thing. Uh, there are a number of households that are baptized. We think of Cornelius, we think of Lydia, we think of uh, the Philippian jailer. When the head of the household comes to faith, the whole household is baptized. Uh, did, uh, did everybody have, did, did everybody, was everybody on board completely? Um, possibly, um, very possibly, uh, but but probably not necessarily likely. And even in the case of uh, children, um, you know, our, our, our faith is largely the faith of our parents for a period of time, is it not? Um, and we're going to talk about that in just a, a, a few minutes. Um, I want to say this, um, just because all of these individuals in Abraham's household are being brought into the covenant. That does not mean they're all in a state of grace any more than just because every, uh, the households in the New Testament are brought in by virtue of baptism. That's not necessarily saying that they're all in a state of grace any more than uh, saying today that everyone who's been baptized is in a state of grace. I don't think any of us would want to agree with that, would we? There's lots of people who've been baptized are very clearly unregenerate, very clearly um, so second, secondly, let me give you another one. There's, an, there's really an absence of a contrary command. Um, if we were first century um, Jews uh, who were accustomed, I mean, when, when, when uh, you know, when the Smiths, you know, uh, uh, you know, Susie Smith, she's pregnant with uh, uh, a boy and uh, they're expecting uh, here any time now and... Uh, uh, that, you know, when, when that boy is, de is delivered and born, there'd be full expectation that that child be brought into the covenant when, in eight days from the day he was born. They would be f they'd be fully expected to do that. If they didn't do that, I mean, that would be forsaking uh, the covenant. Think of Moses when he, re when he hadn't uh, circumcised his children. Zipporah, his wife, does it. Uh, God was thinking about killing Moses on the account of that. If you read the Old Testament uh, story of that account... Um, of course, the Smiths are going to circumcise uh, little uh, Reggie whenever he's born on the, on the eighth day. That's what you do. Now, try to imagine, uh, now Jesus comes along and changes the sign to baptism. And someone says, well, listen, from now on, the kids aren't included. What? I could just hear the moms now. What? You know, you hear all the controversy about sacrament, the sacrament of circumcision. Could you imagine the controversy that would be involved? It would be such a, a radically new way of thinking. You would think there would be some ink spilled about this. Uh, yet the New Testament is silent. Um, the, the issue of circumcision comes up, uh, but the issue of uh, infant baptism does not. And even strangely so in church history, uh, it doesn't come up either. The best explanation for this is that there's no issue there. Uh, and thirdly, um, and lastly, uh, children of believers are holy. 
Now, Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. He writes that for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So by virtue of one believing parent in the household, the children are holy. Now the language Paul's using is really the language of clean and unclean. It's purity language. Um, these children have been born into the covenant. Uh, is basically, it's, it's a providential thing. God could cause us to be born into any family He wants us to be born into. And Acts 17 makes it really clear. We could be born into any family at any time. It's God's sovereign design that we have the parents that we have and we were born at the specific time we were born uh, and it's providential. Uh, so these children have been set apart providentially by being born uh, into a uh, family of believers. And uh, uh, with all of that having been said, let me um, just share a couple of words about the benefits of infant baptism because someone might be thinking, well, what benefit is infant baptism? Uh, baptism. Well, um, uh, we see really um, in the Old Testament, we, we can see how God works in families. God calls Abraham to himself. He chooses Abraham. He could have chosen anyone. He chose Abraham. Uh, he has Abraham. He gives Abraham the faith that Abraham has. And uh, he, um, uh, he gives him the covenant of grace. He gives him the sign of that covenant, namely the promise that if Abraham trusts in God, he'd be credited as righteous. And uh, then he commands him to circumcise his entire household. Uh, so uh, Abraham undergoes all of this. And uh, after Genesis 17, as children are born into that household, whether they're children of, of servants or children of dependent families, uh, they're, they're, circ they're circumcised. And uh, is there a benefit? Absolutely there's a benefit. Uh, these children have a tremendous benefit that the children in, in Canaan don't have. Uh, they're able to look to believing parents. Uh, they're learning the ways of the faith just by watching their parents uh, uh, walk with God by faith. Uh, they're being prayed for. Uh, they're learning the ways of God. There's, there's a tremendous amount of benefits. And we can, we can echo the very same thing uh, in the New Testament administration over baptism. God calls men and women to himself. They're baptized. Uh, they marry off. Uh, they have children. And I believe God's design is for those children to be uh, baptized, just the same design as the Old Testament, and that these children will be nurtured in the faith, prayed for, uh, uh, led in the faith, taught the Word of God, uh, and the, the testimony hopefully will be, and many oftentimes is the case where uh, these children grow up, and, and, and sometimes many of them will say, you know, I've never known a day when I didn't believe in Jesus. I really I really have never really known a day when I didn't believe in Jesus. Now, there are many exceptions to that rule. Uh, some of us become quite rebellious in various times of our lives, and uh, we can rebel, and uh, uh, God will deal with us all differently, uh, uniquely. Um, 
But I've talked to so many people that, uh, in fact, people have come to me over the years and said, you know, I don't have a story. I hear these magnificent stories and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, stories of conversion. And one day I was in the world and the next day I'm in Christ and there's this magnificent story. And I don't have one of those. What's wrong with me? Well, in their case, the individuals that I'm thinking of right now, they were born to believing parents who raised them in the church. They had a church family all their lives. Never was a day they didn't have a church family. They were prayed for by that church. They were nurtured by that church. They were raised in the church. There never was a day where they really was in the world, uh, so to speak. They can't put their finger on a day when they began to believe in Jesus. They can't put, you know, they can't say, you know, I, 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 I've been believing in Jesus for 15 years, uh, three months, and, uh, and uh, 27 days, as uh, one of my friends will sometimes say. I'm sure if I talked to him today, he would tell you. He, he has this habit of saying, oh, I've been believing in Jesus for how many years, months, and days? He usually has. He can even sometimes figure it out as hours. He has this very definitive time where that's how God worked in his life, but that's not how God has worked in all of our lives. How God has worked in many of our lives is he's caused us to be born into, into a wonderful family that raised us up and nurtured us into the faith. And, and I believe that's God, God's design. Um, so uh, that, that's enough said about this. Um, again, if you disagree on the issue of, of infant baptism, that's quite all right. We, we do not want to be dividing over this. And uh, I, I perfectly understand um, I know the, 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 the tension that can sometimes create, and uh, um, I, don't, uh, I don't want any division to take place in the church over this issue. It's a secondary issue. It's not a primary issue. It's important, uh, but it's not a showstopper. There are really fine people on both sides of this camp. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we look to you for your grace uh, if we are to understand these things. And uh, Lord, I, I wish I knew a simpler way to explain all of this. Uh, I know you do. And I pray, Lord, that uh, in the midst of all of this information, Lord, you, you'd be pleased to work in our hearts and, and lead us into your truth, O oh Lord. And uh, give us a, a, a sharper understanding of the sacraments that, we, that our personal baptism would mean more to us than it does today. Not that it's meaningless, but that you would increase um, our perception of the sign and seal of baptism. And as we come to the Lord's table from time to time, that, Lord, that would be uh, much more meaningful to us as we begin to understand how that is also a sign and seal of these great promises that you have made. Raise us up, O oh Lord, and... Uh, uh, give us uh, maturity, O oh Lord, in the things of God, and uh, train us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our closing song this morning? Jesus, keep me near the cross.